Good morning, everyone. For any of you who are new with us, I am too. <laughs> so this is my first official sermon as part of your pastoral staff. Um, and I'm really glad that it gets to be part of this sermon series. And so this idea of discipleship by doing that you guys have been talking about for some time with, with Pastor Brent uh, is actually one of the things that really drew me to joining your staff here um, because it is something that is very near and dear to my heart. And so uh, Pastor Brent, uh, last week, he laid out a vision for this discipleship by doing concept. And he said that it's a vision for disciple making that takes the truths of God the message of the gospel, and the goals of spiritual growth and maturity, and makes it come alive through the hands-on activities of everyday life. So this series and this concept has been framed through the words of the Shema that comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. And also Jesus' restatement of that as the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. <laughs> And so as Pastor Brent kicked this off last week, he was looking at the reordering of our hearts and why that is so important when we come to this idea of discipleship. And so if you missed that, please go to the website, take a look at that video when you have a chance. But today we're going to take a look at this idea of the soul and that portion of that statement. And we're going to look at a discipleship that comes through redefining our identity and so that's going to come out of Romans chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or find it on your electronic devices. So as you go there, um, I'll share with you that when I was young, um, I would get together with my friends and we had this deep competition with each other. We were always trying to one-up each other. We were always trying to be the best, the, the strongest, the, 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 um, the wisest, whatever it might be. We had to outdo each other. But as I was going into junior high school, I still was not the, the biggest or the strongest or the best at sports at all. And so I tried to uh, put all of my eggs in the basket of being the smartest, or at least I thought I was. And uh, one of the things that I really loved was history. And looking back on history and uh, understanding what happened in the past, um, and I also really loved history that had an impact on me. And so I grew up with all these stories of uh, my family's heritage and uh, all these things that have been done in the past that were so great. And so I really put a lot of stock in that. That was my identity. But it also led to a lot of pride. It led to me putting my identity in the past and one of the struggles that came out of that was I started to realize that I was depending on things other people had done in the past for who I was supposed to be. And I recognized, how would I ever measure up to that? And so it left me in this place, struggling with pride, also struggling with this idea that I would never measure up. I could not accomplish things on my own as great as what had happened in my ancestors' lives. 
And so I became depressed. I even became pretty volatile. It just led to this dark place. And so when I was 15, through a pretty traumatic event, I was confronted with my own sin, my own areas of pride, and my own need for Jesus. And so in that moment, I really feel like the Holy Spirit came in and just changed my mind around and made me realize I needed Jesus Christ. I needed to know him. I needed something different to find my identity in. And so um, I changed allegiance, and I found a new identity in Jesus. And it didn't mean that all my struggles were over. It didn't mean that everything got better in that moment. But it did give me a new hope. It did give me a new direction. And I began this life of discipleship, growing to look more and more, if even imperfectly, like Jesus Christ. Before we jump into our passage, I think it's important to also unpack some terms that we'll be thinking about throughout this. First of all, this word soul. So the word in the, uh, used in the New Testament for soul is psuche. And we might say psyche here in English. But it really means our inner being or true self, who we are in reality. And we need to be a little careful with that word here because the way that Paul is using it is meant to draw pagan converts to, to Christianity toward understanding not the philosophical way that they've understood that word, but he's connecting with them uh, toward a biblical understanding of who they are in God. So uh, they would have been familiar with Socrates, and Socrates suggested that there is a separation between soul and body and that the soul and its function of reason is used to bring the body or soma into submission. And Paul's picking up on these themes that these converts would have been familiar with and he's not necessarily agreeing with them. But what he's doing is he's actually pointing them back toward God's creation in Genesis and this biblical concept of the nature of a person as a whole being. And the word in the Hebrew would be nefesh. And so this nefesh is this whole being, this whole person. And we become nefesh hayah, which means living being, when God breathes life or his ruach into the human person. And so when he does this, when the spirit is given to us, and all living and moving creatures share in this nefesh. We become nefesh hayah. But when we die, we're no longer nefesh hayah, but we're still nefesh, whole beings. So the ruach, or spirit, that God sends to enliven all people um, is different than another concept, ruach hakodesh. Now, I'm giving you all this Hebrew. Don't worry about it. There won't be a quiz. <laughs> but... The Ruach HaKodesh is this word for his Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And this is different than the Ruach that's given to animate life. This Ruach HaKodesh is given to certain people at certain points for specific reasons. And that's how it goes through the Old Testament. But there's a prophecy throughout the Old Testament that's saying that God is going to pour out his Ruach HaKodesh upon all flesh. 
And that has happened, and we're told that in the New Testament. It's happened at the day of Pentecost. That for those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, God gives his Holy Spirit, that Ruach HaKodesh, to make his people alive. So that he is with them and present with them in their lives to help them with faith and wisdom and obedience as believers. In Romans 8, Paul never mentions psuche, but we know that he's talking about that, that concept of soul. Because he speaks about the soma, the body, and he's also drawing the Romans to the concept of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so the brokenness of the human condition due to sin. And we know that because he intentionally uses another word for the body, sarkos, which means flesh or dead meat. Basically what you'd see at the marketplace. And so what he means by sarcos is really the longings or the desires that belong to this broken condition, this dead spirituality. And he also talks about the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, that Ruach HaKodesh, which in Greek is pneuma. So Paul is not agreeing with Socrates, nor is he redefining the divisions of the human person here. That's not what he has in mind. Instead, the point that he's making is that something has gone seriously wrong in the human condition. And that we're experiencing a brokenness. That our identity, everything that we hold on to as human beings in our own fallen nature is broken. It's corrupted. It's dead flesh. So in the last two chapters of Romans, in chapters 6 and 7, Paul has talked about both where we find our identity and also our common struggle with sin. So our human identity was broken because we have a sinful desire to wear the divine crown in our own lives. We want to be top dog instead of giving that crown to God to whom it belongs. And that is a dead spirituality because it opposes the true God who's the only one who can give true life. And that true life comes through our faith in Christ. If we seek to find our ultimate satisfaction in anything other than Jesus Christ, we're actually living into an idolatry. We're actually lifting up either ourselves or the things that we create or other people as something that's worthy of worship in place of Jesus Christ. There was this smart guy in the past, and his name was John Calvin. You might have heard of him. And uh, he said that, our hearts are idol factories. We have this tendency to just create idol after idol. We, we play whack-a-mole. The moment we, we think we've got one solved, another one pops up out of our hearts. And the mind begets an idol, and the hand gives it birth, he says. The reality is that on our own, we are broken, we're sinful, and we're unable to save ourselves. And God points out in several places that apart from his spirit, people do not have ears to hear, eyes to see, or minds to understand what relationship with him is meant to look like. There is truly something broken. But God has given his Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Numa. 
to change our lives, to change who we are. He sent the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 7, it shows us that, that, the faith, that faith in Jesus does not instantly remove our struggle with sin. We wrestle now that we are believers still with that, that sinful reality of this broken body that we're in. But that we are given a new identity, a new perspective, and it's changed the lives of believers so that we have the opportunity, we have the ability now to live a Godward life. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we never have any sins that pop up in our lives. But it does mean we have a new reality, a new identity that points in a new direction. So let's take a look at that in Romans 8. Let's read the first eight verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. God is making a distinction between people. Between those who have lived by the flesh, and that, that can come out in different, in different ways. It could be those who are pursuing these idols that are of their own creation um, and running away from God after those things. Or it could also be those who try to achieve a righteousness with God by their own work, through their own flesh. And that's the same thing, because in trying to accomplish that righteousness with God through our own flesh, what we're really trying to do is justify ourselves before him. It really makes us the God in that situation. And he's making a distinction between all of that and those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Christ has accomplished it for us. God is right and he is just to condemn sin and that human rebellion. He's right to reject attempts at earning salvation. But he is also good in that he has provided a way to himself. He's incredibly gracious to us because rather than expecting us to pay for our sinfulness, he has sent Jesus, the incarnate God, to take on the penalty for our sins. That is huge. That means our identity, our true self, our inner being, we could call it the soul, so to speak, must be found in Christ Jesus. We're not able to do it on our own. This is a call to believe in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. 
and then to devote ourselves to him with our everything. Because he is our everything. D.A. Carson puts it this way in his commentary on John. There is only one means of receiving eternal life. Only one source of knowledge of God. Only one fount of spiritual nourishment. Only one basis for spiritual security. And that is Christ Jesus. It isn't enough to merely agree with that statement. It has to become our everything. It has to reorient who we are. This is Christ in us. The very breath we breathe. Now at that moment, if I were you, because I've been there too, the question would start arising, well, wait, if God requires these things of us, this devotion to himself, this faith in Jesus, but it's a work of God, it's a work of the Holy Spirit coming and enlivening us, how can I know that this is happening? How can I trust that God is going to do this for me? How do I know he is truly good? And when I was in seminary, I went through a period of time where I really struggled with this question. How do I know that I've been saved by God? How do I know that he is truly good? And not just good in the ultimate sense that he's the standard bearer, but how is he good to me? How can I, how can I know God is good for myself? And I took these struggles to a professor, and he kindly met with me over a period of a year and walked with me through these things, through sometimes struggles, sometimes even yelling, and sometimes even just tears. I struggled. And he gave me a few valuable helps that I'll share with you. First, he pointed me toward reading about God's goodness toward humanity through Scripture. There are so many places in the Bible where it's not just about the do's and the don'ts, and this is what God wants for us. It is about the intention of God toward us, the way that he loves us, the way that he cares for us, and the way that he's drawing us to himself. He wants us with him. And here are just a couple of passages out of so many. The first one is 1 John 4, 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And this is at the very core of the gospel. That God is good. That God loves us. And that he has sent Christ into the world to pay for our sins. It's very central to our walk of discipleship. Second, he asked me to read encouragements from other godly people who have seen God's faithfulness. 
So the things that we read in scripture, but also the experiences of other people in the world who have just seen God's goodness and have talked about it. Bathe yourselves in how God has been faithful to his people throughout time. And he pointed me uh, toward uh, a, a Puritan pastor by the name of Richard Sibbs. And particularly his sermon series that's been made into a book called The Bruised Reed. And so that is uh, looking at um, the suffering servant from Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And so Richard Sibbs wrote this. Come boldly to the throne of grace in all of your grievances. Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for us sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort because he calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and don't take Satan's counsel. But go to Christ, although trembling, as the poor woman who said, If I may but touch his garment, we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason, that we might go boldly to him. Never fear to go to God, since we have such a mediator with him. God's intention is to heal us and to make us whole in Christ. A third thing, as I struggled with how to know whether I was governed by the flesh or by the spirit, he encouraged me to think about my thought life. Not get fixated on my thought life, but to, to consider it. What am I thinking about? In the way that I think about God, do I lift him up? Do I see him as holy? Or am I lifting myself up? Do I give God the throne or do I take it for myself? And if you're struggling with that, I would point you again toward Richard Sibbs who would say, if you see even a small desire for God, even just the want to want to, trust in that, trust that God is working in it and he will draw you to himself. He will bind up what's bruised. He will breathe life into even the smoldering embers because he's good and because he loves us. We can fix our mind and our hope on that. Pastor Brent made a really good point last week that we're unable to please God through our own actions and our own efforts. There isn't a shortcut to discipleship, as he said. And Paul makes that really clear in 8.8. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. He is the one that is going to work out pleasing him. He has not left us to our own devices to do so. God is the faithful agent. He is good to us. So here are a few thoughts from Romans 8, 1 through 8, that are not about trying to earn our own salvation, but about letting God do his work through the Holy Spirit in us. So first, rest in trust that God is good, that he is for you and not against you. 
then let go of all the, the complications, the expectations, the wondering, do I need to do this? Do I need to avoid that? Let the Holy Spirit be the one to, to walk you through those things. Recognize that Jesus is at work in your life. Jesus is the one who is going to make you whole. Jesus is the one who's already accomplished the work for you on the cross. And then ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. Somebody who is not living for God and is living out of their flesh is not going to ask that. If you ask that, if you trust that he'll do that, he will work. God will not deny whatever is of himself at work in you. Let's keep going in the text. 9 through 13. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So if we've gone through Romans 7, which Romans 8 is based on, we know that we are going to struggle with sin. Our sin, other people's sin, this world is broken. But even as we struggle, let's not lose heart. Let's be encouraged. Because if there is any evidence of the Spirit at work in you, he's going to bring these things to completion. We may be able to see things about ourselves with the stink of dead flesh, that dead meat going on inside of us. But if you have any sense the Spirit is working in you, praise God and lean into that. Ask the Spirit to do that work. Because the Spirit is an earnest of an eternal life with God. And that life is not the result of your righteousness. And that's a good thing. Because you can't accomplish it. It is instead the evidence of the righteousness of Christ. He's going to accomplish it. So our identity needs to be found in him. And if the spirit is at work in you, then you're going to notice changes in your own affections. You're going to see that the things that drew you before, the things that you reveled in and enjoyed before, kind of lose their luster. They're no longer fulfilling. They no longer are what you want. But instead, the Holy Spirit draws you to want other things. Things that please God. Because death cannot produce life. 
The Spirit will help put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's going to happen. If you're in Christ Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is in operation in you, he is going to draw you to start putting those things to death. It's only when our identity is found in Christ Jesus and our security is found in him that works come into the picture. See, sometimes we put the cart before the horse and we start looking at the works and all the things that should be done and we forget about the one who does the doing of them. But in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he tells us that only those who have come to faith in Jesus as their Savior and King have been given this Spirit. And because only the Spirit can give us the life and the desire to please God, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. Paul writes, Are you so foolish that after beginning by means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish by means of the flesh? The good works that please God are those initiated by his own Spirit not our flesh. But he tells those same believers that if we walk by the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't mean we won't ever struggle, but it means a change in our trajectory. This is such a central and essential concept as we think about discipleship. Because we are so tempted to focus on what we can accomplish with our own hands. It's a very warning that God gives to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. Don't think that you've accomplished this by your own hand. We're told in Titus 3, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So that, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. But the doing what is good relies on what's already been done for us. And this should be so relieving to us because it means that not only do you not have to earn God's pleasure in you, he doesn't want you to try. Whoa, wait a second. That might not sit quite right. Aren't we urged to do good things? Absolutely we are. But what initiates that desire in us? Where does it come from? What's its source? Is it what we're trying to do with our own two hands? Or is it what the Holy Spirit is doing within us? He will lead us to pleasing actions. We have a freedom in the Spirit to see ourselves in a different light and to see God in a different light, too. So let's keep going with the passage. Starting in 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit that you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry out, Abba, Father, 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That, as we think about that, that might be difficult. I've noticed, as I've counseled with quite a few people, um, that many people view God through the lens of their own parents. And maybe you didn't have a consistent godly model from your parents. Maybe they were harsh or distant or absent. Maybe they were abusive. And so when we think about God as our father, it could lead to a real wrestling within us. How, how do I know God is good? How do I know that he loves me when my own parents didn't love me that way? And yet the Spirit draws us into a closer, more intimate relationship. When Paul's talking about this being the children of God, it is about a close relationship, not a distant one. And that's why it's so important in our discipleship that our view of God needs to be shaped not through the culture and also not through the lens of our own experiences, but instead through the lens of Scripture. Our parents can be all over the board, but God is consistently good. And so in calling us to good works, he doesn't intend that we be his slaves. He's not harsh to make us fear. Instead, he's calling us to this intimate relationship that comes through the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I love how Paul intentionally shifts here from Greek to the Aramaic of his Jewish upbringing when he says Abba. And that really means daddy. Daddy. We can call upon daddy. And there's something really sweet and profound about that. And I just want to encourage you this week, as you have time in the word, as you have devotions, as you pray, to address God as daddy. You can do that. We're told here that we can do that. We're given a spirit that draws us to intimacy. So try it. And I bet as you do that, there will be things you'll wrestle with. But also I think it will draw you into this really intimate place with God. And then in verse 17, we're given a reason for hope. Remember that the Spirit himself is an earnest. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. He's an earnest. He's a promise. The Spirit points to a future reality that our identity with Christ is not just belonging to God as his child now, but it's about an eternity with God. And there's something so encouraging about that because God himself is our treasure. God himself, we just sang that. God himself is our treasure and we will be able to be with him forever. He is the object that we are after. 
in this whole philosophical way of thinking of the soul and the body and all the things so often it's all about our individual nature being transported to some other place and yea for us but what we so often miss in that message is that we'll get to be with God that we will be his children forever and he'll be our daddy And that is amazing. We are going to receive an inheritance of eternity with Jesus. We fight against our flesh through the work of the Holy Spirit, not just to please God now, but to set him on the throne of our hearts. So that we start that process of having our daddy now. So that we'll have him forever. And so when we think about this concept of discipleship by doing, I just want to encourage you that this is about a reordering, a redefining of our identity, who we are, and that who we are needs to be found in relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is something that God wants to do in us. He's drawing us into that kind of relationship. We are whole beings, and Christ is the one that makes that wholeness make sense and worthy of our pursuit. And God has sent his Holy Spirit to enliven us, to give us the ability to live that way, to find a hope eternal, to change our affections, to calm our fears, to develop intimacy and then produce God-pleasing actions through that. And as we learn to walk with the Spirit, when we're living this redefined identity, that's where we will see the earnests of the glory that will be in us for eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Lord God, we are so thankful for this message that comes to us from Romans 8. Lord, we are thankful for your Holy Spirit that reorders us, re-identifies us, uh, redefines everything about us, that at our core, we're no longer dead meat, but instead we are living beings, that nefesh hayah, and in that living being, we're also given your Holy Spirit, your Ruach HaKodesh, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. You've done that work. That isn't our doing. And so, Lord, help us to lean on you. Help us to know that you are good, that your desire is to draw us in and to have intimacy with us. And, Lord, that because of that, we can live to please you. That if we follow the Holy Spirit in the way that he leads us, he guides us, he urges us, that we're going to please you because you are good and you won't deny yourself. So Lord, help us not to depend on ourselves, but to lay that down and to instead rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>